You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Guys, uh, in, my, in my haste a moment ago, I forgot to mention uh, with, the, with the pantry at 422, um, there's a little fly here, but there's some flies on the desk as you leave. We, we love and we long to serve this city and some of the poorest needs that we're aware of. And uh, Jesus embeds that in us as we worship him. He embeds this compassion in us that is a reflection of who he is. And we can do nothing but pour it out. There's a number of ways, particularly that we're aware of for this Christmas season of, of needs in this area of things that we can buy and provide. So you might even be the first time here and you're like, how do we get part of things? I'd say first thing is jump into to being part of that, grab one of them, it'll tell you some of the details of, of the things that you can uh, provide to, for us to then help provide to others. But um, it's my delight to, well, I don't need to introduce you, everybody knows you, but Shaham, oh, what, a, what a treasure to this church. Uh, I'm delighted she's speaking this morning because she's going to be more legible than me. Um, but good luck with that yourself. Let me, let me just pray for you as you, as you start. Lord, thank you for Shaham. Thank you for the delight she is to this church, the way she serves us, but the way she serves you so, so open-handedly with such kindness and generosity. And I thank you for what you've embedded on her for us this morning. And I pray that our hearts and our minds would be soft and receptive for all that you want to do and all you want to say. Lord, shape not just our hearts, but our wills, Lord. Amen. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, church. Hello. It's lovely to be here with you all. Um, as it was mentioned earlier, a number of us have been away at a conference, and I just felt like I really wanted to say, if you weren't there, we missed you. Even if I don't know you, I missed not meeting you. And if you were there, what a joy to be together. And I just, the, the thing we're going to be talking about today is surrender. Um, the theme of the conference was not, your, not my will, but yours. And I just feel like the Lord is saying, if you, if you were there, there's still more to do. And if you weren't there, you're not getting away. We're all going to go on this journey. So, um, so yeah, I'm really expectant and excited. And obviously, the Lord is moving among us. This is the real thing. Um, it's not just in the conference places. It's not just in, in those spaces. This is the real thing. So as I said this morning, we are going to be exploring the theme of surrender. Now, this is something that the Lord has used so graciously and powerfully to shape, change, and basically totally transform me. So, when I was about six years old, my sister and I were making bracelets. Now, I'm the younger sister, and so, of course, I thought she was amazing, and I was determined to like whatever she liked, because if she's five years older, that means she's cool by default, although I don't know if that works anymore. Anyway, let's hope so. Um, now, one of the beads in the bracelet-making set, um, it was a plastic bead, it was diamond-shaped, and it was purple. Now, there was, a, I know, it's huge, it's big. Um, there was only one of these, and it was my sister's favourite. Um, but I just thought, wait a minute, what about me? Like, how did she get a favourite? I didn't even have a chance to decide which one my favourite was. And now that's it. This beautiful bead is spoken for. So I said to my sister, very assertively, um, just so you know, I want the purple diamond on my bracelet. Uh, and she said, also very assertively, no chance, mate. I'm sorry, what? Uh, so as a very well-meaning, very measured younger sister would, I wrestled it off her. Um, and in a moment of 
panic and I would say utter devotion to the coveted bead. I shoved it so far up my nose that I had to get it surgically removed, which is uh, pretty good stuff. I don't know what to tell you other than it, it all happens so fast. Um, and who does she think she is picking favourites before me? I knew that because she was older, she, she would be able to get it back off me. So the surprise attack, firstly, was my only hope. And then, um, because she was going to be able to wrestle it back off me, the only way to ensure its safety was to put it in the perfect pocket on my own face. Um, and let me tell you that in that split second, I decided if I can't enjoy that, no one can. Uh, and I didn't enjoy it, actually, so that really came through. Obviously, my sister was furious, um, probably because she hadn't thought of it putting it up her nose herself, but, um, you know, not everyone can be this quick. Anyway, she found my mum and told her what had happened, my mum being very reasonable, although knowing we probably did need to have a chat about sharing, that was my sister's main point, uh, knew that the immediate task in hand would be removing the bead from the depths of my nose. She tried everything, but resolved that we would need medical assistance. So off to the local doctor's surgery where we went, and after rummaging around in my nose for some time, Dr. Reed assured us that there couldn't be anything up there anymore because he'd just been looking for miles and there was nothing there. Um, but my mum insisted that he needed to keep looking. So after a little while longer, he eventually found it, and he managed to get it out with the extra long tweezers. So here's the thing. I had categorically refused to surrender the purple diamond. Firstly, it was never actually mine in the first place, crucially a bit that I didn't tell you. The whole bracelet-making set, including the purple diamond bead, was my sister's, it was not mine. And secondly, it was no use to me up my nose. In fact, it was quite painful and could have been a bit dangerous. Uh, and after it, it was out, not even my sister wanted it back. So uh, I, I was in for a bit of a shock. Not surrendering turned out to be a pretty bad choice. Sadly, I didn't learn my lesson. Thankfully, I did about not putting things up my nose. Um, but surrender took a bit longer. I have kept things that were never mine in the first place. I have clung to promises that the Lord has never made and refused to let anyone near them, keeping them in my heart and letting them do damage and then feeling utterly let down by the Lord when he didn't keep a promise that he never made. If the Lord is truly good, then our disappointment in him cannot be warranted. There is clearly a disconnect, but if it's not with him, then it is on the expectations that we have wrongly put on him. Now, this is something that the Lord has so kindly, gently and graciously taken me on the journey of, carrying the wounds in my heart, inflicted by the lies and lost expectations that I've chosen to carry. Lies and unmet expectations about him, about the church, about me and about other people. Expectations unfairly made and crushingly unmet. But in his mercy, he didn't slam the door on the face of my painfully untrue accusations or unfair disappointments. He beckoned me closer. He healed my wounds and he urged me ever so gently to see that maybe the problem wasn't with him. Surrender is how the journey of faith fully begins. When, we, when someone gives their first yes to Jesus, there are parties in heaven. And it is a wonderful moment to be a part of here on earth. Sometimes we put all the emphasis on that first surrender and forget about all the other surrenders to come. Or forget to keep surrendering at all. 
I gave my allegiance to Jesus as a 14-year-old in my bedroom after hearing about him at a local youth club with not a lot of Bible knowledge because I didn't always listen very well at the youth club. But I gave my yes to him, my first surrender to the king. And I didn't realize at the time that surrendering needed to continue. Or if I did think about surrendering to Jesus, it would be things that I thought he needed me to give up that would ultimately impact how much fun I could have. So I just didn't really want to think about what those things might be. Of course, Jesus loves the things that we do for him or the way we align our lives with his to usher his kingdom in. But I'm convinced that the stuff he loves, the stuff he gets out of bed for in the morning, not that I think he sleeps, I don't know, um, is the heart surrenders. Those are the things that he yearns for. Now, Paul mentioned this verse. He spoke a bit on it last week when he was sharing with us about money and generosity. And can I also just urge you, if you missed that talk, it was so powerful. And it's such an important one that speaks to this family so powerfully. And it also speaks so much into surrender. Now, this verse that I'm about to share with you is helpful from both perspectives. So often, how we spend our money and our time can indicate where we're at with surrender. The verse is from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8, and it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So my question is, how are we giving our hearts? He wants a willing heart. I didn't know that he needed any more of my heart since the first time I gave it to him, but he did, and I did. So about a foot in front of where I'm standing now, in this hall, tears streaming down my face on one of my first Sundays here with some very friendly strangers praying for me, strangers who would soon become you guys, um, absolute family to me, asking Jesus on my behalf to send his Holy Spirit to meet with me and with the power of his presence change me. Just there, my second surrender. The surrender that made me realize that the Christian life is not a one and done. It is every day, Lord, I will give you my heart, my soul, my strength and my life to you, my King. And not out of guilt or shame or unwilling passed on duty, but out of utter devotion for having seen the face of Jesus. And this may present itself in different ways. It may require different things of us, but every time he wants the same thing our surrender. And can I just urge you really practically that if you're not in the place of willing surrender, he doesn't want you to feel guilt or shame. It is really important to say that this is not another thing that means that you're not very good at being a Christian. And if you're feeling that, then I promise it's not the Lord saying it. Please don't see this as a burden because it's about freedom. And that is what the Lord longs for for all of us. So often we dig our heels in because we're scared and the enemy is going to want us to feel shame in that moment so that we flee from God. But we can start with a simple prayer that has become a regular for me. Lord, I'm not there yet. I don't even want to surrender this. But I think I want the want to surrender. So help me, Lord, to even want to change. Set me in motion. Lord, I believe forgive me in my unbelief. That, as small as it may seem, is enough for the Lord to work with. 
immersing ourselves in his presence as much as possible and praying that prayer of the want to want. So exactly what is the Lord looking for when it comes to surrender? In the song, one of the songs that we sing here, You Have Our Yes, there is a line from the bridge. It's one of my favorites. And it says, the cross is our call and our only allegiance. What a truth we need reminding of. The cross, where the saving power of Jesus' sacrifice changes the lives of anyone willing to give that first yes. Being saved through surrender is our calling, not a place to live or a job to have or family or relational dynamics to seek out. But our calling is to be saved and our allegiance is to allow him to keep saving us. We cling to the promises of the rugged cross again and again and the power of what happened on that day has reverberated throughout history and here in this building and in the hearts of these people. And for each of us, it starts with that first surrender. The next surrenders are whatever the list of non-negotiables are. Whatever we've closed our hand on and told God, actually, we know best for this one. If it's a job, a career path, a family dynamic, a way of thinking, how we spend our money, a political stance, a relationship, whatever it is. God is asking us to lay it all at the foot of the cross and let it bow under the authority of Jesus, the King. In Romans 6.11, we read, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We now count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. John Wimber was one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement that we find ourselves a part of. And in one of his talks, he says that going back to our old ways is like going back to a corpse. The parts of us that we have refused to part with, the things that we've let fester, our prayer can be, Lord Jesus, resurrect me, make me new. But if you could just leave this one little section, I'd really appreciate that you just leave that with me. That would be great. Now, please hear my heart on giving your life to Jesus. You are new, redeemed and restored. But we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. We are in the in-between. And in his mercy, we find hope and peace in the pockets of his presence. But there are things not of God that continue to rage on in this world and in our hearts. And while we are still in this now and not yet time, there are parts of us that stink because they died however long ago we gave our first surrender to Jesus that we haven't yet parted with. I still know what's best. I don't want to miss out. I can't change that. That's just who I am. A God who loves me wouldn't ask me to give that up. Well, that's my dream. Can I even trust God? Why does he want me to stop doing what I just want to do? These were all a few lies that I had told myself and pretty convincingly believed for some time. The new and the old fighting for more ground. The pursuit of wanting to follow him with everything has been one of the most transformative practices of my Christian faith. And to speak quite practically, I will often quote the psalmist in my prayer times and urge God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of the everlasting life. 
I would then pause, often with a notebook and a pen in hand, and wait for him to speak, wait for him to respond. The gentle whisper that corrects me and sets me back on track. The Bible tells us that there is joy in salvation. And we know that for salvation, we need surrender. So to live in peace with who we are called to be, with God's plan for us, in relationship with him, to be free from the wrestle and to live out joy, we surrender. In Psalm 51.12, it reads, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. I think it's really crucial to notice the order in which this happens. The joy comes from salvation and then comes obedience. Obedience to an unknown God whose character you're unsure of and whose love you haven't fully experienced is a quick way to feel shame. We are obedient from a place of joy. The verse starts, restore to me. So that means God is expecting us to lose it somewhere down the line. He's already anticipated it and he is ready to remind us to plant our joy in the truth of who God is and what he says about us. And from that space, our behavior may change. What we do, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the laugh, the jokes we laugh at, all the things that we question, these may all change. And the lasting changes come out of restored joy in salvation through our surrender. So what are the reasons we don't surrender? We don't think it's necessary. We don't want to address our pain. We don't want to realize that actually we are lacking. We are vulnerable and we don't have all the answers. Or maybe we don't want to get let down. These plus many more reasons are all different options of why we hold on to control. Now, most of the reasons I can think of would either be that we are believing things about ourselves or about God that are not true. Or often, we just don't want to take the time in the first place to go there so that we don't have to be faced with our lack of self-awareness or with our own disbelief, or most likely a bit of both. Harvard University, in researching self-awareness, came to this conclusion. According to our research, with thousands of people from all around the world, 95% of people believe that they are self-aware, but only about 10 to 15% actually meet that criteria. That's a sobering fact. There could be 85% of people who are like, yes, I know myself, I've got this down, and they're actually quite far off. And actually... I don't know how they do this research, but from what I know about how God has taught me about myself, I think that we all need God to search us and tell us our blind spots. There is an element of lacking self-awareness, and the other one is our disbelief. Now, this prayer I've recently shared earlier on, but in Mark chapter 9, 24, it says, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Lord, I have faith, but not enough. I even need help with that. The Bible is explicit on needing God and other people to walk this journey with. People and God intervening amongst my little moments of willing. This is a forever thing, and we need strength for endurance. I have surrendered. I am surrendering, and I will surrender. And as a result of that, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. 
Surrendering is always going to be a wrestle because we live in a world that is screaming at us to do as we please for our own comfort's sake. Settling our souls in the truth about God's trustworthiness makes surrender so much easier. This is an uphill battle in the world that encourages us that we know better than God, which so often means that we come to God and we judge him according to the information that we have gathered from our own small existence. We wait for God to convince us that he is useful and we approach him as unhappy customers when the road is rockier than we signed up for. He isn't taking away pain. He isn't giving me what I want. And quite frankly, he is so slow. We so often fight to stay in the summertime seasons of our lives, but then autumn still comes around. The seasons still change and things won't always stay sunny. I found that a far better use of my energy is seeking out the joy, hope and light in the deep, dark winters of life, rather than convincing myself that I'm not cold because it's still summer. We acknowledge the pains. We know there are seasons that are lonely, cold and painful, but we hold the tension of looking for the sunshine in the winter and we fight for hope when the night draws on. If our discomfort is how we measure God's trustworthiness, we will be left wanting. If the scales of joy and sorrow are how we are deciding if God is good, we have misunderstood his promises. Often in our most vulnerable moments, what we believe about God rises to the surface. It is in those moments that we can be left feeling utterly confused and let down if we have assumed promises that God hasn't made. We long to keep things that were never ours to keep, holding on to ideas about God or ourselves, onto aspirations and dreams, relationships, friendships, onto ways of living that cause pain to us and to those around us. Having a non-negotiable with the Lord is a very difficult place to find yourself and it will leave you with a wrestle that will tire out your soul and leave you questioning the character of God. Instead of weighing God's character on these scales, I just urge us to look to Jesus. Jesus, he didn't take away our vulnerability. He enters into it. Our precious king in the garden, hours before his death, pleading with his father to spare him of the pain to come, sweating blood in his anguish, he utters the words of ultimate surrender and forges the path for us to follow. Not my will, but yours be done. Not wanting to go too deeply now into the Trinity, but God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, each different from one another, but all of the same substance, with different roles, but equal in nature. God didn't keep bad things happening from God himself. God did not spare himself from surrender. So why do we think we should get a free pass on this? God surrendered completeness, comfort, and rightful adoration for pain, despair, brutality, hunger, and loss. And ultimately, it was all for us. The shortest verse in the Bible is two words long, and it reads, Jesus wept. The living God, he weeps for us, complete, full, holy, and yet he made us knowing that it would cost his tears and that he would one day give his life for ours in the hope that we might do the same. 
We are made in his image, which means if surrender is a part of his story, it has to be a part of ours. In Makoto Fujimura's book, Art and Faith, he explores the journey to the new through Christ's tears. In this section, Makoto is talking about the moment before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. When the Bible reads, Jesus wept, Makoto writes, why, if he has the power to resurrect, why does he not just wave a magic wand and solve the problem right away? Why does he waste time and weep? Archaeologists have discovered that in biblical times, there were these things called tear jars. Now, tears were so coveted that people kept them in jars. Jesus' tears were not collected. They dropped one by one onto the hardened ground, and they evaporated into the air, and they are still with us today. It is right for us to be troubled by the broken realities of the world around us, but do not let Anger overtake you in despair, just as Lazarus was resurrected after Jesus' tears. Let your tears lead to your small resurrections. Pain and stubbornness can rob us from our small resurrections. We are only as surrendered as our last yes. The moment a new thing crops up in our hearts or an old habit reappears, on asking ourselves the question, but would I give that up if the Lord asked me to? If the answer is no, then it is true that our surrendering stopped at the last one. All that being said, it doesn't stop it from just being so difficult. The pain is not proof that God is not trustworthy. It is alerting us to the fact that we were not made to live in a broken world. It is eternity in our hearts calling out to the hope to come. As the psalmist writes, it is deep calling out to deep. And as Ecclesiastes puts it, he has planted eternity in the human heart, which means the ache in our hearts is heaven calling us to hope for home, like a lighthouse beckoning boats to the safety of the shore. But so often, the enemy moves the bulb out of alignment in this little lighthouse in our hearts. And this ache that was intended to guide us to the safety of God's actual promises gets twisted out of shape by the enemy who uses the stormy weather as so-called evidence that this world is a mess, that the waves are too high, and that God isn't doing anything about it. Sometimes these thoughts aren't even thoughts that we've fully formed, but without addressing what we think, our hearts can be acting up on autopilot. Ultimately, surrender is the journey of becoming more like Christ, which means we all have work to do. In God's mercy, he asks for our pain and trades it for his saving hope. We will not be left empty-handed by giving up our attempted control over the non-negotiables in our lives. But only when our hands are empty is there room for them to be filled with the joy, the hope, the peace and love that is so much lighter to carry. So if God is not promising the absence of pain, what is he promising? The Bible has our answers. Psalm 16, 8 says, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. Deuteronomy 31, 6 reiterates, it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And Matthew 28, 20 brings us home with, and behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. In Tish Harrison Warren's book, Prayer in the Night, she explains the accidental beauty of nautical flags. Now, I don't know a lot about nautical flags, so I'm going off Tish with this one. She says that there are 40 nautical flags in a complete set. Raised by themselves or in different combinations, the flags mean different things. Combinations could be saying, what is the wind doing or man overboard? Now, even in this day with GPS, satellites, radios, all these things, ships still keep flags on board, but they rarely use them. Flags on ships are necessary when things have gone very badly wrong and they are the only signal left for help. On signaling for help, other ships can respond with their flags. By raising three particular flags in a certain combination, this lets a ship in distress know, I will keep close to you during the night. That is the Lord's promise. He will keep close to us in the night. He does not promise that the night will not come or that it won't be terrifying or that we will not be immediately tugged to shore. He promises that we will not be left alone. Now, if we are waiting for specific questions to be answered by the Lord before our surrender comes, we may be waiting for a while. He may never utter the answer our hearts are set on and he may never reveal the mysteries we long to know. And we may never get our heart's deepest desire in the way that we long for it. Tish continues in her book by posing the question, how can we trust a God who refuses to explain himself? Well, this is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be endured. We sometimes talk about mystery as if it's a code to crack, as if the full sweep of knowledge is available to us. We just haven't yet sussed it out. But true mystery invokes things that are fundamentally beyond our grasp. Mystery is an encounter with an unsearchable reality, an acknowledgement that the world crackles with possibility because it is steeped in the shocking and unpredictable presence of God. The songwriter Andy Squires puts it like this. What does this mean? It means that even though the absurdity of death remains, it is not the final reality. There is a resurrection of the dead. There is a hope beyond the grave. And there is a love so relentless that nothing, not even death, can stand in its way. C.S. Lewis gives us the final piece of the puzzle. He says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? Now, it may seem like, oh, that cannot be the answer. I need to know that it's more than God is the answer. I need to know my desires will be met. But surrendering to the Lord being the answer is the most freeing realization that I have ever come to. We still fight for justice. We still yearn for our small resurrections. We still pursue restoration because we simply will not be fully satisfied until the Lord sets every last thing right. We were not built for this world in the way that it is, so the ache in our hearts is not out of place. We live in the meantime, but the meantimes are sustained by the miracles. It is before his face that our questions die away, and that we are fulfilled in the promises that he actually made, that he will be with us.
Our heart's unwarranted wantings are put to rest for a moment and the rightful longing for more of him brings a peace that is utterly indescribable. In surrendering our need to know everything, in surrendering what we have put ahead of his desire for our lives, we are met with the only thing that doesn't disappoint because it's the thing we were made for. At the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there is a moment when Indiana needs to get across a massive crater. The instructions he is given is to take a leap of faith. Now, this is a spoiler alert, but it's been out for a long time, so hopefully you've had time to get down to the cinema and see it. Um, Now, I watched this when I was a kid, and I can't tell you how excited I was. There's no possible way out, and then all of a sudden, he does it. Indy gears himself up. He does as he's told even though all he can see is a drop into a deep, dark pit. He takes the leap of faith. He sticks his foot out and he puts his foot down. And just then, in that moment where surely he's going to fall down into this deep, dark pit, the camera pans around, our perspective shifts, and we see a ledge, which is like a bridge across the crater that leads him to the other side. From where Indy was standing, it looked like a leap of faith. But when the camera turns, we see that it is actually solid rock. Now, when I first saw that, I thought, well, surely that's it. It's the best plot twist in cinematic history there'll ever be. That was phenomenal. Thank you, Indiana. Um, I actually lost all interest in how he then saves the day, because that's not even the main bit, um, because I was so infatuated with that moment. It, was so, it would be so unnatural for him to do that, stupid even, and surrender can feel the same. But looking to the truths of who God is gives us the courage to go again. Remembering his faithfulness to us and to the countless members of the Christian faith that have gone before us and walk alongside us, who have walked through everything from the mundane relentlessness of life to deep, hollow tragedy and yet have refused to let go of the truth that God is good. That giving him control, the one who made, knows, and loves us, is the best path for our lives. So when the fog descends and we are scrambling around in our boat for flags, pleading for help to come, we will see the Lord's response. The combination of flags that he raises that reads, I will stay close to you in the night. The Lord, in his kindness, doesn't even ask us to sugarcoat our frustrations. In the book of Psalms, the most common type of psalm is the psalm of lament. The book gives us full permission to speak to God plainly, voicing our disappointments, pain, confusion, and loss. So if our prayers to him are exclusively prayers of absolute trust, confidence, and victory, then we are learning to be less honest with God than the scriptures themselves are. God, in his mercy, encourages us to speak to him authentically in all of our moods with all that we are. But perspective is so crucial. Centering back on the promises that he actually made so that surrendering can be possible. Ellie Mumford, one of the pioneers involved in the early days of the Vineyard movement and still a big part of our movement today, in a podcast recently, she put it like this. Through her tears, she shares, and after a lot of sharing about the cost of following Jesus for her in her life, through her tears, she says, last year, I celebrated 50 years as a believer, and my husband wrote me a card saying that it is worth 
everything for the pearl of great price. It has been really rough sometimes, but I couldn't imagine a life more wonderful or more full or more fun or more satisfying. The balance sheet is ridiculous. Okay, so there is a price to pay. The cost is there, but the reward and the wonder and the pearl of it all is just incredible. It's unparalleled, and I would do it all over again in spades. There is a phrase that we have in the vineyard that says, the way in is the way on. So if surrender was the way in, the way on is the same. If surrender is how it started, surrender is how it must go on. I'm just going to invite Paul up as we are going to invite the presence of the Lord to do what he does amongst us. Could I just ask you guys to stand? We're just going to invite his presence. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. Have your way. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, you are welcome in this place. For what you've already done, we invite you afresh. I just feel like the Lord is saying if, if you were at the conference and you feel like you've missed out, or if you weren't there and you feel like you've missed out, or if what was happening earlier this morning wasn't happening in you, just that he's saying, you won't miss it. And actually, the fire of the Lord is catching. If you weren't there over the weekend, or earlier this morning felt a bit different, the fire of the Lord is catching. And he moves in us graciously, so differently for each of us in the way that he made us. Have your way, Lord. Have your way. So it was very difficult not to be challenged by that this morning. One phrase have used was you've, you've got to want to want it I just pray even now for some of you there's a awakening of a want 
feel like some of you this morning have been given something to give to others and some of you have need to take something some of you need to give something mm. it's just the overflow of the Lord mm. some of this stuff is going to be bringing up some quite sensitive painful things that the Lord wants to meet with you over I had a picture of um, an oyster and when a bit of grit or dirt or a bit of broken shell gets inside an oyster, that is how a pearl is made. But I recently found out that in that moment, the oyster has a choice whether to cover it repeatedly with a balm that turns it into a pearl or whether to leave it, which ultimately can be painful and cause damage. So, Lord, so gently, as you do, we just offer this. Of if there is people, there are people here who just need to bring something to the Lord. Lord, would you be moving and speaking? Why don't we just respond? Do you see the Lord resting on them with you? Mm. I just want to say, some of you want it and some of you want to want it. Just mm. come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and have some people pray with you and step alongside you. Come, Holy Spirit. Whilst people are standing up, it's a bit easier to get out of the rows, but just come to the front of the sides. And come, Holy Spirit. The Lord is here, you can see He's here. Spirit of God, we welcome you. I think as ever, it's never, it's never a spectator sport. This isn't about seeing something happen with something else. This is about us placing ourselves at the feet of Jesus mm. ourselves individually. Mm. Lord, come. Mm. Thank you for your presence. Having a an awareness of the Lord all over the room. It's just, I realise some people have come forward for that, but you just see what the Lord's doing. Let's mm. just don't disengage, don't rush these moments mm. of His presence. Lord, we welcome you. Yes, Lord. It's not a transaction; it's a transformation. Mm. Spirit of God, come. Mm. I feel like some of you almost there's a there's like a trepidation of this. It just feels a bit confusing and a bit out of your mm. comfort zone. Honestly, I identify with that. That would have been my story 20, 25 years ago. But I've, I've, I've tried things other ways. I've tried things in my humanness. I've tried things in, in a, almost a religious mindset. Mm. 
what we want is the presence of God, the person yes, of God, God among us. Yes, God. So kind and so gentle. Mm. Come, Lord. Just as we sang that last song during worship, I felt the Lord stirring up around maybe surrendering to the body of Christ. And even as that word was shared as we came into land, this is what he's coming back for. This is his bride. And where there has been pain, around church the Lord in his goodness and his gracious uses us in our broken places and our broken parts so God I just pray would you stir and move in people who in surrendering more to you surrender to committing to your bride the body of Christ. Come, Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. <laughs>